And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jared Goldstein back to the program for the second of a two-part interview. Jared is a professor of law and associate dean for academic affairs at Roger Williams University School of Law. Today, we'll finish our discussion of his recently published book, Real Americans, The Problem of Constitutional Nationalism, which is published by University Press of Kansas. So, Jared, we were talking about the through line of uh, violence as a re- reaction to a supposed government overreach going from the Klan up till the January 6th revolt last year. Allow me to be reductive in that I think a lot of the arguments I see within the book are essentially, how dare you deprive me of the right to deprive other people of their rights? Well, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. From the outside, I think that that makes a certain amount of sense to, to, as a way to describe some of these movements that I examine, that is movements of you know, white supremacists, Christian nationalists, nativists, anti-government reactionary you know, extremist groups. Of course, you know, what my book tries to do is try to explain, at least from their view, how they justify and see what they're doing and why they believe that what they're doing is a defense of the Constitution. In another interview I, I gave recently, they asked, you know, is it a dodge on my part not to say why the Klan is wrong or why I don't say that the Christian nationalists are wrong and why I don't say, you know, even the Cliven Bundy and the insurrectionists are wrong. Of course, I disagree with all of these groups, as, as I think I make clear in the book. But the point of the book isn't to explain why they're wrong about the Constitution, because I think the Constitution is an easily malleable document that lends itself to a wide variety of positions. You may notice in the introduction, I described the Constitution as the kind of magic mirror that Americans look at and see their own views reflected in. You know, I think enough other people have tried to explain what's wrong with the constitutional views of any of these groups that I'm looking at, but nobody has tried to explain why those groups themselves understand the Constitution and why they think that the Constitution gives them a right to take violent action or to exclude people from the country that they think don't belong here or that or to claim that their status needs to be preserved at the expense of, of others. You know, so I am not trying to dodge those other important questions as much as I'm trying to explain what the Constitution means to the Klan, what it means to Christian nationalists, what it means to nativists, what it means to groups like the Posse Comitatus or the January 6th insurrectionists. That is how it's possible for people to believe that our Constitution, which you know most of us feel creates equal rights and is available to anyone, regardless of race, religion, national origin, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, or the like, how these other groups can believe that the Constitution is made just for them and not for others. And I think one of the points I want to make is that we shouldn't be trying to say that these groups are foreign to American history, because they're not. I mean, many of these groups are, you know, extremists and radicals and murderers, but they're all American extremist radicals and murderers. They come out of an American tradition that we have to acknowledge, because if we don't, you know, we both be denying the truth of our history, but also we would be denying it at our peril to suggest that any of these groups don't come out of a tradition that we share and need to acknowledge, I think would be, well, both wrong and would lead us you know, to continue to make mistakes and underestimate the power of these ideas as many people have. I mean, I think that for anyone who is shocked by the insurrection or anyone who's shocked by the rise 
of Donald Trump, you know, and who is you know shocked by the Tea Party or shocked by or the Klan by any of these groups, we should stop being shocked, and we should see that these groups are part of our history and and come out of a tradition, maybe a tradition that we don't like, but you know, or a set of traditions, but they're embedded in U.S. history, and we, we can't deny them as being a central strand in our collective identity. Do you think the Constitution has kind of ascended to this level as a religious text? And that's kind of why people fight so hard and are willing to to do so much violence in its supposed defense. In a certain way, that is, you know, the Constitution is often described as sort of, you know, the basis of our civil religion. You know, in a certain popular view, the United States doesn't have any, American people don't have any common you know, history or have any common blood ties or any common language or common uh, religion. And so we need something to bind us together. And so, you know, there's been a belief that what we need the Constitution as being the, the force that binds us together. And this was this was Lincoln's view, and this was John Quincy Adams' view as well in a pair of speeches that they made in the mid-19th century. They looked around and they were afraid that the nation would fall apart given the increasing divisions in the country around slavery. And they said, what do we need to do to keep the country together, to unify us? And they said, we need to make the devotion to the Constitution our political religion. That, that was Lincoln's words. And we need to express a common devotion to the Constitution at, at all times. Teach it to your children. Think about it as you walk upon the way, says Adams, riffing on uh, language in the Bible, in making devotion to the Constitution akin to devotion to God. So in a certain way, I think that these groups just took that, to, you know, take that to heart and their commitment to the Constitution is at a commitment of religious devotion. But I would say mostly I, I'm resistant to this way of looking at things because I think most of the time, it's not commitment to the Constitution per se that's going on with any of these movements. It's really commitment to the power and status of particular group identities that are then expressed in constitutional terms. That is, the Constitution gives us a language, or maybe slightly differently, devotion to the Constitution and expressions of devotion to the Constitution give us a language for expressing, in a patriotic language for expressing what are really divisive views about uh, national identity. So when we have conflicts about accepting immigrants, we have conflicts about accepting or about the religious pluralism, we have conflicts about accepting differences of sexual identity. It's this language of the Constitution gives us sort of a neutral and patriotic way to express very exclusionary views, or at least, you know, that's how one side in these debates uses the Constitution. That is to say, you know, one group wants to defend white power, wants to defend Christian power, wants to defend heterosexual men's power, and the Constitution gives them a language for doing so. So I, I don't think, you know, from my point of view, that it's devotion to the Constitution per se, that's the driving force behind a lot of these movements. It's that constitutional language is just a, a neutral and patriotic way to express this kind of hatred. Now, of course, the, there's constitutional language on, on all sides of every debate. So it's not that this is the language that's just used by one side, but each side is you know relying on constitutional language to carry the weight 
of a vision for the country, either one that accepts immigrants or doesn't, or that is a Christian nation or a pluralistic nation. Each side is relying on a constitutional vision or they're relying on constitutional language to express their views. But I think that it's their view of their the country and who belongs in it that's doing the work and the constitutional language is just the way to express it. So for those who you know will describe the constitution as being the sacred text in our national religion or our civic religion, I have to ask, well, whose text is it and what does it say? Because it seems to say something different to every group. You know, everyone can put what they want in terms of the constitution, you know, whether it's a pluralistic, you know, liberal progressive one or a conservative libertarian or, you know, white supremacist vision. So the constitution, I don't think is doing the work in our discourse as much as it's allowing us to often hide behind a neutral language for carrying out conflicts about national identity. All major religious works tend to be twisted to the advantage of whoever's doing the arguing. I mean, there were never any wars fought over the interpretations of the New Testament at all in Europe. (laughs) But it, it seems when you say language, it almost makes me think that it's the grammar by which we have to argue and that we have these units that we're able to manipulate and arrange in such a way to build the picture of what we want to express. I think that that's right. Well, historians of nationalism, those who study nationalist history, the sort of stories a nation tells about itself. There's a strand in this writing about how, you know, nationalist history is usually wrong. Nations get their history, get their history wrong because they want to tell myths about the great founding, about how the country was born in a noble way or born in, in a way that gives meaning to who the people are today. You know, we see that, you know, in a lot of, you know, American history classes as taught in in high schools, you know, like what's happening now about the debate over critical race theory being banned from the schools. There's the public schools, you know, they want to keep teaching mythical history because it confirms what they understand the country to be and sort of focus on these stories that are painful in our history or that they think are distorted versions of our our history conflicts with their idea about who we currently are. So debates about the founding, debates about the founding fathers and the meaning of what the revolution was about and what the constitution was intended to do, you know, often are again a way to fight about not history, but about contemporary practices. We we fight about the stain of slavery as a way to carry on a fight about what current policy should be today. It's not a coincidence that the view that critical race theory shouldn't be taught in schools arose as a backlash to Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests. There are protests going on now about police brutality and about institutional racism and unconscious bias and the like, and what we should do about it now. But then the, you know, the, some of these fights go on, on this other level about, well, what should we be teaching our kids in schools about it? So I think you, you were saying that, you know, the language of the constitution, well, is used by each side to carry out their current program. And so much of, you know, the way that they frame the language is about differing ideas about history. You know, that is the groups like well, anyone from the, you know, the Klan to 
the Trump movement have a particular idea of what American history is about. And I'm not trying to say that the two are the same, you know, but the, the, the Trump uh, White House put out the 1776 project to, uh, to respond, um, you know, to the 1619. Yeah. Thank you to the 1619 project to tell a different version of history, but a lot of, but these histories are there, you know, not because we care about history per se, but because it tells us about who we are now, right. And what we should do now. So, um, you know, the, and, you know, their view of, of this history informs who they think we are now. And there's contrary views about what the history was that tell us a different story about who we are now. Um, and, and a lot of this then gets, you know, wrapped up into ideas about what the, uh, both what the constitution means and should mean now, um, and what it meant then. So history, uh, you know, history is, is not dead. History is alive, at least as a way to fight about uh, what we should, who we are now and what we should be doing. I heard someone recently talk about Russia and its current sense of national self-identification and that in, in a way it can be described as Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, we were the ones who defeated the Nazis. So anyone who opposes us are Nazis. Because that is our identity. We are the ones who defeated the Nazis. Therefore, all opposition are the Nazis. And so much in America, I think nowadays, you are right because of who you are, not because of what you do. And it, it's it's really frustrating to see that kind of dynamic play out in the national conversation. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, what you said made me think about, you know, the use of American history in, in a lot of debates. That is the, uh, you know, the Tea Party movement saw President Obama as King George, and they saw they're the revolutionaries fighting against tyranny on every side. You know, if you see, if you think who we are, are the people who defeated monarchy and stood up for individual liberty, you know, then every time anyone is a threat to liberty, well, they can be, you know, depicted as the new monarchs who we're fighting against. You know, that is this, the notion of where we came from informs so much of who we, well, can be used at least to, you know, to fight any current policy that we disagree with, you know, and this is how, you know, say the people who are opposed to mask mandates, you know, see it as just a new form of tyranny by some foreign occupying power and can depict, you know, their fight as being one that's like what the founding fathers fought against. Each side is going to, you know, use this history, you know, distorted versions of this history to carry out, you know, their current agenda. It seems to me in reading the businessmen's constitution is the one that's probably ostensibly most libertarian and not yes. based in some time. Now, practically, because white men were the captains of industry, but at least at least in their language, it was the most libertarian. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, that chapter examines the American Liberty League, which took on Franklin Roosevelt about the New Deal. The Liberty League was founded by captains of industry, the you know leading corporate figures of of the day, you know, in 1933, 1934, to fight against increasing federal regulations, and they use you know, what now is a pretty familiar kind of constitutional language. They, they described New Deal programs as being socialist, as being collectivist, as being 
communist that conflicted with their idea of what America was about, which was a libertarian vision, just as you say, um, where everyone was free to do what they wanted to do, free from undue government regulation. So in this case, when the federal government is imposing restrictions, say, on by protecting the right of workers to organize or providing minimum wages or maximum hours or establishing the social security laws or regulating coal mining, all of these New Deal programs were seen by the Liberty League as somehow un-American and unconstitutional. And so their way of describing what made these programs you know, wrong and un-American was just, as you say, you know, a libertarian one, that is, individuals should get to do what they want and they can draw on, and they did draw on, you know, a lot of American history that supports that. That is, there was a, you know, the notion of liberty as protected in the constitution and that give me liberty or give me death. And, you know, there was, of course, a long history of, in America of protecting liberty. And so it, it's a malleable enough term and the history can be put to different uses. And here, the, you know, that history was put to use to fight against New Deal regulation as being, you know, antithetical to what America was all about. You know, it's similar in a way to, you know, the other history that I look at here, because you have a a group that was entrenched in power. Business people had long had freedom to do what they wanted. They had a lot of power to control the economy and a lot of economic power, of course. And then the New Deal comes along during the Great Depression and starts to tell them what to do. So their power and status are threatened. They mobilized to defend their power. They see the threat to their power, not just as a threat to their own individual power, but as threat. They see it in national terms. That is, it's it's undermining their idea of what America is like. And then they articulate that vision in constitutional terms. That is, the New Deal is not just bad for business, not just a bad policy, but un-American and unconstitutional. So it's, you know, those movements, you know, those rhetorical movements that ally it with the same sort of movement that the Klan did and the Christian nationalists did and the nativists did. Now, I'm not trying to say that they're all equivalently wrong or bad or have the same ethical standing, but just the pattern of threat to entrench power and that those who defend themselves articulate their defense of their power in nationalist and in specifically constitutional terms is what, you know, is similar. Now, it didn't work for the Liberty League. Roosevelt took on the Liberty League and saw them as the spokespeople for entrenched power. That was how how we put it. You know, the Liberty League helped to create, you know, more support for Roosevelt because they were such an easy target. You know, in the midst of the Depression, these corporate bigwigs, you know, fighting against protection of working people was, you know, not a, a movement that was likely to succeed. And it gave Roosevelt had an opportunity to articulate his constitutional vision, you know, one where the people get to decide questions like protection for workers and minimum wage and the like, and enabled him to articulate that against this villain, which was, you know, big business. And so Roosevelt, you know, goes on in 1936 to, to you know, having campaigned against the Liberty League to get a overwhelming victory that he interprets and perhaps the Supreme Court interpreted as well, you know, as a ratification of his constitutional views as against those of the Liberty League. Of course, the story doesn't end there. These stories never end, you know, at the end of you know one chapter of history, because the Liberty League's 
rhetoric, their their way of describing their opposition to the administrative state that was created by the New Deal is the same kind of rhetoric that then, that is picked up by conservative groups ever since. Manufacturers, organizations, the Chamber of Commerce picked up on it. Barry Goldwater and his movement essentially used the same kind of language, the same sort of libertarian language that the American Liberty League did. The John Birch Society takes the same language and makes it a little more radical, but Ronald Reagan used the same sort of language that the Liberty League started to hone in their fight against Roosevelt and the New Deal. So, you know, this strand in American thinking of, you know, libertarian resistance to centralized power, you know, isn't new. The Liberty League was drawing on, again, something real in American history, but then using it you know, for their own purposes to defend corporate power, you know, which is why, you know, this kind of rhetoric continues to resonate because, you know, in every generation, there are people who see federal regulation as tyranny. So we have a kind of rhetoric that's now been developed to articulate that in constitutional nationalist terms. This libertarian approach always neglects the fact that there might be a nose at the other end of a thrown fist. Yeah. I mean, you know, classically libertarian says, you know, the, you know, you're right uh, to do as you want to end, you know, wh- where your fist, when your fist hits, well, hits someone's face. But, you know, well, their differences of opinion, obviously, is, is for indirect punches, you know, that is the, the harm that's done, you know, through, uh, say, environmental pollution, you know, or climate change or, or the like, you know, it's not as clear as a punch to the face. And so when the government wants to tell people what to do, you know, to prevent pollution, you know, can be resisted as federal tyranny or as restricting individual freedom without, you know, when you don't see who's getting punched, you know, or the same with you know, regulations of minimum wage or maximum hours or family leave or the like, you know, when the harm to those affected is more indirect, it's easier to depict what's going on as big, bad federal government telling people what to do. In a couple of these chapters, in five and six, people tend to rely on the canard started, I guess, by the John Birch Society. This is a republic, not a democracy. Yes, that that is right. This motto will not die, and it you know, and it's used for you know to cover up a, a whole lot of bad policy. But yeah, the John Birch Society you know popularized this this motto to say the people don't get to do everything that they want to, you know, they were resisting integration and they were resisting civil rights laws and they were resisting a lot of actions by the federal government, you know, through the 50s and 60s. And so they developed this, well, they rely on this motto to say people, you know, here's some things that the people don't get to do because the individual gets to decide on questions like this about you know, for instance, do we get to where? Where do we get to send our kids to school, or, or you know, do we have to pay minimum wage? Do we have to pay federal taxes for things we we don't like? You know, if you look at you know the founding, there's no well unified view about the role of the people in deciding policy. You know, that is, there's certain things that are taken off the table. That is, the government can't restrict free speech, and the government can't restrict uh, religious exercise, although even those things, of course, are debated about what they what they mean. 
but certainly the people get to decide all sorts of matters of policy through national politics. That's the whole point of Republican representative government is that the people get to decide all sorts of policy matters. So Jefferson, you know, often you know will refer to people's power as being a democratic republic. That is, you know, the idea that there's some conflict between being a republic and being a democracy is just not one that the founders saw. I mean, of course, they did, you know, they wasn't a some sort of pure Athenian democracy where everyone gets to decide everything. It was a representative democracy. But the people, you know, were empowered to decide all sorts of questions through the political process. That was the point of uh, representative government. But you get groups like John Birch Society and later the Tea Party, you know, that rely on the slogan as a way to resist what the people might want to do through the political process. That is when they disagree with, you know, laws that, or when they find laws that they consider oppressive, um, they can say, you know, these are illegitimate and we can resist them. The country wasn't intended to be a democracy. That is one where the people get to rule. It's a republic. You know, it's always a uh, rhetorical statement. It's a motto to resist laws that one, well, that groups don't like, especially groups with a libertarian bent. I've even seen some call to revoke the 17th Amendment, allowing for the popular election of senators in states. Yeah. I mean, it's part of, you know, uh, a strand in American politics that doesn't want the people to decide basic questions, you know, especially one that that movement is tied into states' rights views. That is that we're concerned that the states have lost their power and the federal government has expanded its power. And, and they say, you know, the mistake that we made was to let the people decide directly who who their senators would be, because if the state legislature did that instead, then they would know that their interests were represented, you know, in the in the Senate and state's power would be protected. Now, you know, why we wouldn't want the people to decide their own representatives, I'm not exactly sure. And of course, if the people don't like what their senators are doing, people don't think that their senators are protecting their state interest, they have a very easy way to do to express that view is by voting them out of office. But, you know, maybe more broadly, this view about the uh, 17th Amendment is part of a trend to distrust what the people might do. You know, and we see that, well, in a lot of places in politics where we see, you know, we don't trust the people to decide. And so we want to make, you know, to protect, protect us from what we protect us from our what from ourselves, protect us from what we might want. I think that's a very generous reading. I think it's a way of paving the path to minority rule. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that that's. I mean, I guess you're, you know that I, I, maybe I maybe I, I should make that point more explicit. Um, I think that that's right. That it's saying, you know, we want the people who we trust. That is people like perhaps people like us, people with our politics, or people who are you know in charge of our state government to be able to you know to protect us. Um, so. You know, we don't want majorities uh, to uh, to do that because we don't trust. Well, there is so much more to talk about. I was going to ask you about Jenny Thomas and whether Clarence <laughs> Thomas should recuse himself on anything that we're dealing with the January 6th insurrection. But I just don't think we have the time to do that, Jared. I want to thank you so much for speaking with us these last two episodes and sharing Real Americans with us. Thank you, Steve. You're, you know, it was, it's 
was a pleasure. You, I, I could tell you, you read the book very carefully. So it's always, you know, fun to talk with someone who who had has read the book and had such great questions. And and I thank you know your listeners for for listening in. All right, take care and be safe. Thanks, you too. Bye bye. Jared Goldstein is the author of Real Americans: The Problem with Constitutional Nationalism, which is published by University Press of Kansas. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752.